This week on the Defense Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, jumpstarting the innovation ecosystem inside DOD and the obstacles to keeping Pentagon planes in the air. It's Wednesday, November 16th, 2022. Welcome to the Defense Scoop podcast. Every week you'll learn what's going on in defense technology. I'm the host of the Defense Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The Space Development Agency will be the home of a new software factory, and the Army's reviewing results from its latest data-driven warfighting exercise. John Harper's managing editor for Defense Scoop, Mark Pomerlo, is a reporter for Defense Scoop. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. I start with you, John. What is Space Development Agency looking for in this app factory that it is starting to build? Welcome. Thanks, Francis. Um, Well, it wants industry to uh, build uh, a secure environment uh, where new software applications can be tested out um, that could uh, enhance uh, the Space Force's battle management, uh, command control and communications capabilities. Um, And these apps are intended to uh, eventually be deployed on board satellites to do edge processing uh, to uh, make uh, these uh, C3 nodes more effective and uh, further the JADC2 construct that the Pentagon's pursuing. What's the timeline look like? You're reporting draft solicitation due by December 9th, final solicitation February. What happens after that? Yeah, they just put out the draft solicitation uh, and they're getting feedback from industry on that. Responses are due December 9th, as you noted. Um, And then a final solicitation uh, for the app factory is expected to go out in February. And then shortly thereafter, SDA uh, is expected to make an award to industry. And they're using an other transaction agreement to uh, try to speed things up. That's kind of SDA's MO is to try to Uh, move fast and uh, get new capabilities uh, up and running and uh, on orbit as quickly as possible. Uh, And then after that, in the summer of next year, they're going to be releasing uh, solicitations for the uh, initial apps uh, themselves that will be kind of put through their paces in this new app factory um, before eventually potentially being uh, deployed uh, here in a couple of years uh, on orbit. The, uh, the the timeline for this seems to be fairly aggressive. Your, uh, your story quotes Derek Tournier, uh, the director of the Space Development Agency, saying the apps really need to be developed and running by the 2025 timeframe so we can start to upload those and actually do operations on board the spacecraft. Is there a sense that that's a makeable deadline, John, or is that really aspirational? Uh, well, so far, uh, you know, SDA has been uh, pretty fast moving. You know, as I noted, they use these other transaction agreements to kind of cut through some of the bureaucratic red tape that's uh, traditionally associated with the Pentagon's acquisition process. Um, so, you know, it remains to be seen whether they can pull everything off by that timeline. But, you know, based on the way SDA has been operating with their uh, data transport satellites and other technologies. Um, it seems like it, uh, you know, could be feasible and isn't, you know, kind of a, a pipe dream at this point. Um, excellent reporting as always, John. Mark Pomerlo, welcome. The Army making progress on processing and accessing data for future and better decision making, but much more work needs to be done, according to senior leaders. That's how you start this story on Project Convergence 22. What is that and what did the Army learn from it? 
Sure. So uh, Project Convergence is the Army's annual experiment. Um, it's, it's their contribution to this uh, JADC2 uh, notion that the Pentagon is moving towards, uh, Joint All Domain Command and Control. It's really the Pentagon's um, future concept for how it will fight wars, essentially um, connecting all sensors and shooters together to get the right data to the right decision makers to kind of stay ahead of the decision loop of adversaries. And so uh, this is the third iteration of, of Project Convergence, which is really an experiment um, to test the interoperability of systems together, um, both with the Army, its joint partners, and uh, for the first time this year, uh, coalition partners as well. And one of the key aspects of it is really testing how to get all of that data uh, to the right people at the right time. And so, um, as you mentioned uh, in the story, senior leaders talked about some of the results that they had this year. It's it's still a little too early to tell how, how some of the things did, but um, they had a few initial observations and, and, and those really were that um, there's still a little bit of work to be done, but they are making progress towards um, getting this data to be more standardized uh, across the force. Is there significance to the fact that this was the first time the coalition partners have been included and do we know anything yet about who they were how they were integrated into the exercises and what they bring to the table sure yeah this was uh that was definitely a, a huge component here um as as the the military likes to say they'll never fight alone and so um you know the army has even gone as far as to call it cjad c2 um for combined meaning uh in international and, and coalition partners um uh, this year, the, the the British and the Australians um, participated. There were uh, several other nations that that observed. Um, but you know, in in order to to really get to this this vision, they really are going to need other partners on board. Um, and and so the the vision, uh, as as far as as long as it's been explained to me, is that they really want to be able to take the best system and the best shooter uh, uh, and and put it on target. You know that that could be. Um, you know, intelligence coming from an Air Force sensor um, that's uh, delivering it to an Australian uh, system that will eventually take the the final shot. So really, they want these systems to be interoperable and, and seamless and, and the, really the best um, positioned system uh, to take the, the shot, if that makes sense. It does make sense. And I wonder what the obstacles are to that beyond just data standards. The Pentagon's trying to crack that just within its own service uh, branches. And I imagine that adding the, uh, the other militaries over which it has no uh, say adds additional layers of complexity potentially. It does. I, I, I would imagine, though, that that uh, their participation um, and and them being folded into these types of exercises really demonstrates their their buy-in. I know that on the Air Force side, with their contribution, the Advanced Battle Management System, uh, they've started to to do a few um, experiments and exercises in the Pacific. Um, with partners there as well as other partners in Europe. So um, they there does seem to be buy-in from, from coalition partners here. So um, I guess more to follow there, but they, they do seem to be on, on board with this. Uh, just very quickly, does this wind up looking someday like a data version of RIMPAC? Uh, 
I, I suppose it's possible, but uh, again, uh, from a project convergence standpoint, it's really more of an integration exercise right now, or, or I, I guess even an experiment, you could call it, really just testing how these systems are going to interact and really testing some of these concepts as opposed to um, exercising how the force will fight. Um, I, I'd imagine that maybe in the future that um, it could look a little bit more like we're impact testing these, but um, really it's just kind of an interoperability experiment right now. Mark Pomerlo, John Harper, thanks very much for joining me. I appreciate it. Thank you. You can read more about these stories and lots more at defensescoop.com. The Defense Department says it's rooting out a series of obstacles for cybersecurity companies to deal with the Pentagon. The orders are coming from Deputy Secretary of Defense Kathleen Hicks for technology and acquisition leaders. Steve Blank is co-creator of Hacking for Defense and Hacking for Diplomacy at Stanford University. He's an adjunct professor there and a founding member of the Gordian Knot Center for National Security Innovation. Steve, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. Is it your sense that the trajectory of innovation for the Defense Department is getting better, getting worse, or staying neutral? Welcome, Steve. Well, the good, thanks for having me. I, I think the good news is, uh, you know, the word innovation is, is now being used about uh, 100x more than it's been used before. Uh, but I think what we've created uh, is to date innovation theater rather than innovation. We have tons of coffee cups, posters, lanyards and the rest. Um, but I'll just summarize what I'm going to say in a sentence is that the DOD has world class people, world class organizations for a world that no longer exists. Um, and that's the problem, not that we have bad people or bad orgs, but they're doing what they're designed to do. Um, and the people we've appointed and are in place are the same people we would have appointed a decade ago, and some are. And so we shouldn't be surprised by the results we have. What does what gets to a different result? Is it just choosing different people, or is it the way in which those people go about doing the business that they're appointed to conduct? So a couple things. One is, you you know, for the last couple decades, I don't have to remind the audience, we were, you know, the hyperpower. We were dealing with Al-Qaeda and ISIS and non-nation states. And, and uh, you know, status quo within that frame was just fine. Um, but now, at least if you ask the folks in Indo-PACOM and certainly look at the Ukraine, we're in a crisis. It's a very different world. Um, and, and the one thing we've not done is say from the president on down, certainly through the SECDEF, that we're in a crisis. Because in a crisis, you appoint different people, stand up different orgs, use different vendors, not replacing the ones you have, but realize that you need to move with speed and urgency and alacrity and deliver things uh, in faster rate that are different than what we've done before, in addition to the things we're already doing. Um, and uh, that just takes a different mindset. It doesn't mean you throw out all the gold. It just means you need to bring in people with different points of view and different different capabilities than you had before. Um, and and we've done that in the in our path. We as a nation, we've managed to, you know, sometimes belatedly stand up to crises and, and change what we were doing to match those needs. The problem is, particularly in the South China Sea, we certainly might not have years or not even months to actually adapt and adopt to the things that are going to happen to us. Um, and, and, but the good news is inside the DOD, there are what I'll call insurgent cells of innovators um, who've been raising their hand saying that, you know, perhaps we ought to build, 
you know, thousands or tens of thousands of things rather than put all our assets in big you know, things that have bullseye painted on them. And, and, the, and the surprises that we're watching China do to us, and I'll pick on China for a second, what we did to the Soviet Union in the Cold War, that is, we were very proud of the offset strategies that Bill Perry and Howard, uh, Harold Brown did with advanced technologies, but we've stopped talking about that because China's just done, a, done about five of them to us, uh, whether they were hypersonics or those fields of 300 new ICBMs being built or um, you know, carrier killers and DF-21s and all the things we can't talk about. Those are asymmetric things against our big battleship Galacticas, and it's not that we don't understand that. It's that we're not we're not deploying at scale. Obviously, in corners of black programs, etc., we we have our own counter capabilities. But you don't see see things deployed in water or air at scale that make an adversary's uh, calculus very different than it is now. And we're we're seeing some of those asymmetric uh, things play out in Ukraine. We're using traditional things like artillery, but we're coupling it with some some new things we haven't seen at scale, uh, drones and and, uh, and and other systems as well. So that's the soliloquy to a simple question, Francis. I want to come back to Ukraine because you're not the first person to say there are lessons for us to learn in the evolution of the arsenal. But you mentioned a moment ago that it's not necessarily, the solution is not necessarily to throw out all the old. How does one ascertain which of the old to keep and which of the old to discard, Steve? Yeah. So, so one of the great things about a an organization that does both, it's they're called uh, they're called ambidextrous organizations, which is a fancy word for organizations that know how to chew gum and walk at the same time, that knows how to execute and innovate. And I'll just use a commercial example of our our favorite super rich person is Elon Musk, but then SpaceX. You know, their launch cadence now is five to six times a month from three launch pads for Falcon Nine. And that's pristine execution. They don't screw that up. They're maybe tweaking stuff a little bit for a little more payload or whatever, but man, they got that down. And blowing stuff up on the pad, that's completely unacceptable, particularly if you have human beings on the top of those rockets. But at the same time, they're building the next generation um, uh, called Raptor Engines and, and Starship in Texas. And Elon's strategy is if you're not blowing things up at all, you're not innovating. Uh, and if you're not Blowing them up on a regular cadence, you're not innovating fast enough. But these two organizations don't exist um, independently. While you think of them as silos, they're, in fact, have massive horizontal connections. The, the people from the Falcon 9 are explaining to the, the Starship folks where the ground service equipment should plug in and all the lessons learned there. And the Starship folks are learning all about new materials and feeding those small incremental changes into the existing org. I use that as an example of a pretty complex, you know, military-like organization that's innovating and executing, certainly not on the scale of the three million, you know, men, William, women, civilians, et cetera, in the, in the DOD. But it is possible to do inside of services and inside of combatant commands to both execute and innovate. And, um, you know, our example is we're, we're never going to give up carriers, but in fact, in the water, in Indo-PACOM, ought to be thousands or tens of thousands of of both passive and lethal things with kinetic stuff on top of it that are a hedge strategy to, um, to, to what we already have. And this is the idea that Admiral Selby, the chief of ONR, has been pushing is we have lots of 
we have lots of simulations and lots of demos, et cetera. But in World War II, the war in the Pacific uh, started with the Navy's plan of a battleship war that, you know, they kind of already figured out we were going to fight Japan. And there was lots of simulations and war games that said so. And, and it would ultimately win with a battleship to battleship war in the Western Pacific that we would win. And that was uh, true all the way up to the morning of December 7th when the Japanese showed us a very new operational concept uh, and put our battleships on the, on the bottom of Pearl. But in fact, we also had aircraft carriers. In fact, starting with the Langley in the early 1920s, we were practicing with them with the fleet, except the scouts and reconnaissance. We had seven carriers when we started World War II. We ended up with 110 in three and a half years. Three and a half years. Um, and in fact, the, you know, carriers growth groups has been the principal way we project power. But it was the carriers and subs and marines that won the, the war in the Pacific because we had a hedge strategy already in the water that we had practiced with. Didn't say it was going to replace battleships, but we, in fact, had enough hands-on of things that deployed that we just needed to scale. That's what we're missing today. We don't have, you know, we don't need to have the argument that carriers obsolete or tanks obsolete or whatever. We just need to know, what do we see coming over the horizon? And, and where are the hedges that we have? Where are the new drone factories at scale? Um, where are the new semi-submersibles? Where are the new clouds of stuff in space? To, if you, the public would know what China had it up there, you, your teeth would fall out. I mean, we just are, in fact, investing most of our dollars in the existing systems. It's not that we're not experimenting, but we really haven't gotten serious about building hedges at scale. And by the way, the problem, the reason why we don't is, I believe, it's the DOD budget, which is a zero-sum game. If you're a prime contractor and you're thinking that someone might be asking for things you don't have the capability to build, it's over your dead body. And because most of Congress is coin-operated, and you know, I don't mean to pick on them, but I will, General Dynamics lobbying budget just by themselves is $20 million. You know, Multiply that by the five largest primes, and you can understand what new entrants are up against. Yeah. And, and, and so this is going to take a, you know, the executive branch and Congress and, and uh, SECDEF with an idea of how do you align the primes with, in fact, you might lose revenue, but how do we make your businesses those profitable? Or how do we incent you to, because no, no new entrant is going to know what a prime knows about system integration or kinetic things or how to put things uh, through hatches on ships or uh, the, how to make stuff reliable in space. Those are decades of learning. Uh, but at the same time, no one is paying the same baseball star salaries that the um, um, scale-ups and startups and Amazon and whatever are paying for AI people and, and the rest. It's just not possible in a large corporation at that scale. By the way, this downturn is a huge opportunity in the tech space for primes and a new configuration of uh, dual-use companies. So, so I think with a little imagination um, and, and a lot of vision and a ton of leadership, the DOD could actually um, meet and match the threats in, in, in front of them. But as I said as a, when I began, the, the status quo is, is going to paint us into a corner we don't want to be standing in. You mentioned the horizontal connections in SpaceX, and that struck me as you made that comment that that is exactly the reputation that the Pentagon has the opposite of, that uh, ability among services, among 
commands and so on to exchange that information. And that's not something that's easily replicable or fixable, is it? Well, it, it's ironic. I spend a lot of time across a lot of uh, uh, services, commands, and, and uh, other agencies. And I find myself at times <laughs> being the one who says, hey, you ought to talk to these folks and you ought to like, connect in here. And, and gee, somewhere in my role decks, I know somebody in that agency who's actually working on the same thing. You know, number one, that is kind of the, the curse of a large organization. I mean, now compound that with um, um, uh, compartmentalization and security and, and, and the rest, and you, and you have a, a problem that no commercial company has. Um, but we also um, have built into, you know, everybody loves to beat up the PPBE, you know, the McNamara hangover, and, and then the Packard 5000 Dot one stuff that that added another decade to, to acquisition, but it also, in fact, um, stopped us from getting out of the building. That is, we kind of assumed if we thought hard enough, we could write a requirement and predict the future and, and the rest. And that culture of, of being able to predict stuff at your desk versus actually getting out of the building and, and seeing how the world has changed or what operational needs are really needed um, and, and what I'll call the front. And the front is pretty clear, one in Eastern Europe and the one in the Western Pacific. And, and you know, for anybody who spends time in the Pentagon, it, you kind of like forget about the rest of the world. You're in a building with barely any Wi-Fi and, and certainly no, no cell connections, except if you're standing in the outer ring in the right window. Um, and paperwork takes, you know, a year to just move from one end of the building to the other. That's, that's not what the real world is like, you know, outside. And so we have this culture of not getting out to the front that we also need to change. And I think, and I don't mean breaking compartments. I mean, security is there for a reason. I just mean seeing what the real world looks like and then looking back at the paper at your desk and go, are any of these connected? And I think Ash Carter probably in the last, and Ash Carter and Bill Perry are kind of my models of um, what we need again is uh, sectors that could see over the horizon and know how to execute and innovate at the same time and manage the politics in both Congress um, and in the White House. And, and that's juggling chainsaws while you're jumping through flaming hoops. So I'm not suggesting it's easy, but it's necessary. Um, you, you know, all your listeners understand that, you know, we face a, either a choice of a dystopian future that the Uyghurs and the folks in Hong Kong are, are now, you know, seeing. Uh, I don't wish that for anybody in, in Asia or let alone the world run that way. Um, you know, we still are the world's best bet for uh, for how I think the rest of the world would like to live their life. To your point about the fronts in Eastern Europe and the Pacific, what can we learn from the front uh, in Eastern Europe that may apply to the Pacific at some future point? Well, you know, one of the surprising things I, I, I know folks in the DOD are looking at these lessons learned is the role of Starlink and, and persistent and unjammable uh, communications and and again it looks unjammable from the outside obviously there was a lot of work from cyber command and a lot of other places to keep those things up and running but the fact that you have thousands or ten ten thousands distributed terminals and then it's being linked to you know artillery systems and the rest um i think the you know the other uh, uh, surprises is how effective not only high mars but javelins and and I tank weapons are and a, a distributed force. Um, you know, the unfortunate part is that 
other commentators have said, I'm, I'm not sure how accurate it is, is that unfortunately we look a lot like the Russians <laughs> and, um, in terms of capabilities and what we have. Uh, and, and I think that's unfair because the, the Ukrainians are using a lot of our systems. Um, but, but obviously the integration of drones, um, and we're just seeing the tip of what's possible, you know, um, now with the Iranian drones raining down the Ukrainians, you can imagine a world in, in less than three years where A2AD is, in fact, a drone shield above cities rather than passive um, ground-based uh, uh, interceptors. You can just imagine airborne drones that are uh, A2AD clouds. Um, not too hard to imagine, technically possible today. Um, so I, I think the... Uh, the use of drones uh, right now, most of them or almost all of them are, are dumb drones. You, you can imagine a ton of them uh, fitted with some version of autonomy as well. I think that's, uh, that's pretty frightening for things that move on the ground or targets you want to reach in the air. Um, and as I said, the integration with the communications and, uh, um, and the ability to move in an agile fashion and also deploy new systems agilely. I mean, uh, uh, the ability to supply the Ukrainians with a mix of systems that mostly work together is a testament to both NATO and uh, and their supply chain. Um, and I, I hope people get credit for, for that. But the way that the Ukrainians have used them, I hope we're equally as capable. Um, and, and I hope Taiwan is, is learning lessons. Um, you know, the, the political part of this, it's worth remembering, the, the West didn't support Ukraine because we wanted their oil, or in their case, their lithium or their wheat. We were supporting a democracy that decided that they wanted to fight, not a flight out. Um, and they had a leader that said so. It's not clear in Taiwan is whether, you know, we're going to trade tens of thousands of servicemen for two nanometers. That is to support TSMC and semiconductors, which, by the way, if we, if we lose and China wins those, that is a, a huge blow to Western economies. But but that's different from, you know, are the Taiwanese willing to stand up like the Ukrainians and fight for their country rather than are they asking us to, to fight for their semiconductor fab? And so it's never quite clear, at least to me, whether when you hear words from Taipei, whether it's the leaders in, in the Taiwanese government speaking or the chairman of TSMC. Um, and, and I think that's a different set of uh, calculations that need to go on, not inside the DOD, but, but obviously in other places. You know, Taiwan believed they had a semiconductor shield because they made chips for, for uh, PRC. Well, we took that away, so now their semiconductor shield is whether we'll fight for their fabs. You know, obviously conversations need to be going on as well. Why the hell are you still building your fabs in, in Taiwan? Um, because you're just now giving China a bigger reason to, to, to make it a target. That's way above my pay grade and, and I think above the DODs. But at the end of the day, the servicemen and women in the Western Pacific are going to pay for those calculations or miscalculations of whether Taiwan is like the Ukraine or is like Iraq and Afghanistan, um, where we're fighting other people's fight who weren't willing to fight their own, at least at scale. I think they're, those are pretty interesting night and day calculations. And, and the DOD is just one part of, you know, dime and diplomatic information, military and economic power that makes up a great power. And these are some of the calculations that um, we get to see other people make and, and eventually get to execute. Hopefully we do enough interesting things to deter war 
not just have the capability to win it. I mean, that's the goal is, is if you don't have a war, then I think we've done the right thing. Um, Steve, there's a, a lot more I'd love to cover, so I'd love to have you come back and continue the conversation. Thank you very much for joining me today. Well, thanks for having me, Francis. You can read more about the department's innovation structure at DefenseScoopPodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Defense Scoop Podcast. The Cloud Together Summit's coming this Thursday, featuring speakers from the National Security Agency, CISA, DISA, and a lot more. It's happening at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City. You can see the full list of speakers and register through the link in today's show notes at DefenseScoopPodcast.com. Defense Department aircraft programs are struggling to keep their aircraft in the air. Only four out of 49 programs meet their mission-capable goals most of the time. Diana Mowers, director of the Defense Capabilities and Management Team at the Government Accountability Office. Diana, thanks for joining me today. Looking at 49 aircraft and only finding four really ready to go isn't a great ratio, is it? Welcome. Well, thank you very much, Francis. It's great to chat with you as always. And you're absolutely right. It's not a great ratio. You know, we looked at, as you mentioned, 49 different things that fly across the military. So we looked at Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines. And over an 11-year period, only four systems out of 49 consistently met their mission-capable goals, which means they were ready to go when the military needed them to do what they wanted to do for performing their missions. I note the uh, UH-1N in the Air Force was ready to go 11 out of 11 times that you examined it. Uh, also, uh, some successes with the EP-3E in the Navy, the B-2 in the Air Force, uh, the uh, Navy's E-6B, and the Air Force's RC-135SW. Um, what were the common themes among those programs that had them ready to go, Diana? That, that's a that's a great question, Francis. And in many respects, they're they're very different systems. In some cases, some of those systems are relatively small in fleet size, so the services were able to focus a lot of additional time and attention to ensure that they were operational and able to meet their their mission capable goals. So I think that was helpful. Um, some of them are interestingly enough are are there's a mix of older and newer systems, right? So some of the systems are relatively new. Some of them, the B2, for example, is uh, has been around for three decades. So the, the fact that they've been able to keep those systems flying on a more consistent basis in terms of meeting the Air Force's goals and other systems is uh, pretty uh, pretty commendable. I note uh, this from your work, comparing fiscal year 2011, fiscal year 21, the average mission-capable rate for the select aircraft has fallen for the Air Force, Navy, and Marine Corps to varying degrees. The average mission-capable rate for the, for the selected Army aircraft has risen. Is the Army doing something different than the Air Force, Navy, and Marine Corps are doing, or are there factors that are different for the Army programs, vice the other programs? Sure. So for the, for the Army, um, first of all, four services over the course of you know the past decade have been modernizing. I think the Army has been focused more so on that than some of the other systems. Uh, the Army also placed a greater emphasis and focus on sustainment. Um, so I think that helped. And I think one of the third factors is that sort of early in that in that time period we were looking at, so 2011, 2012, 2013, you know, the Army was was involved in, in ground combat, right? In, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, um, very high use 
very high uh, operational tempo. That was less so the case in 2020 or 2021, which enabled them to kind of get ahead of the curve in terms of sustainment. All right. This is a noob question, Diana. I'm going to try to draw a, a common everyday parallel here. And if this doesn't make sense, you're welcome to tell me it doesn't make sense. I buy a I buy a car brand new and it requires much less maintenance sustainment in the first couple of years than it does in the fourth, fifth, sixth year. And then it does in the eighth, ninth, tenth year and so on. Does that apply here too? Is that a sustainment factor that maybe gave the Army an advantage because of their modernization program? They're dealing with aircraft that are earlier in that sustainment cycle. I think for the specific instance of the Army and the Army's helicopters, that certainly helped them, right? It's it's easier to maintain a, a newer Apache than it is to maintain an, an older Apache that's seen you know hundreds, if not thousands of flight hours under combat circumstances. Um, so that definitely helped the Army. Um, when you're talking about other services, the the newer being easier to maintain um, idea doesn't necessarily apply as well. Uh, one of the things we've noticed for systems like the F-22 for fighters, so for F-22s or F-35As, their operation and, and support costs per flight hour are significantly higher than the aircraft that they are replacing and their mission-capable rates um, in some instances, are lower than the systems that they're supposed to be replacing. There are three factors that you list in this work as sustainment challenges, aging aircraft, maintenance, and supply support. Are there uh, one of those three factors or a combination of those factors that make a bigger difference than the others in the aircraft being ready to go? Or do they kind of all play an equal role, Diana, in, in, in an aircraft being uh, fit to fly? All three are important. I think though of those, and we saw all three being problems pretty much across the entire fleet of, of 49 systems. Supply support was more frequently a problem across more systems than the other two. And so that supply support, what does that mean? That means difficulty getting the spare parts that are necessary to, uh, to fix the aircraft. In, in many instances, you know, these systems are old. Um, and it's difficult, if not impossible, to find the original manufacturers to replace the parts. I mean, the B-52, the average age of the B-52s that are flying right now is 61 years. There have only been airplanes for 120 years. So that means the B-52 flight fleet has been flying for more than half of the history of flight. So it's not surprising that they sometimes face challenges in, in getting the spare parts that they need to fix what are very old aircraft. What are the recommendations that you make to these services? Obviously, it's not going to be as simple as just buy new aircraft. So what does one do when one is flying aircraft that have been around for a half of the life cycle of aircraft? So for the older aircraft, the, the services need to pay closer attention to trying to address some of these supply support issues, You know, figuring out ways to either incentivize the industrial base to enter into the business of making spare parts or uh, doing a better job of managing the, the inventory that they have. And we have seen improvements in, in, in both those rounds. Um, I think bigger picture though, within DOD as, as a whole, there needs to be greater attention and focus on sustainment issues, right? I mean, um, it's always more interesting and it's not just, it's not just specific to the military. It, it's, 
true for just across people in general. It's more interesting to think about buying something new than thinking about what maintaining what you have. And there's a very large evolved sustainment enterprise within all of the services, but they're competing for resources and attention and leadership support with, with all the other priorities that the services are trying to juggle right now, which includes modernization. I think a, a, a little more of a nudge in the, in the direction of sustaining what we have and making sure what we have is able to perform its missions long enough so that the new systems are in place to, re, um, to, to come online and meet future threats. I mentioned a few minutes ago, Diana, the comparison between 2011 and 2021 regarding mission-capable rates. You also referenced the cost structure here. Air Force and Army ONS costs, operation and support costs have decreased, while Navy and Marine Corps ONS costs have increased. Based on our analysis and information provided by the program offices, these trends have largely been driven by changes in the size of aircraft inventory and reduced flying hours. Tell me how that ratio works, how that change in in ratio has worked over time, Diana. Sure. So um, I think um, it's probably best illustrated um, by comparing the the Army and the Marines, right? So when you compare 2011 to 2021, the Army's overall ONS cost dropped by 54%, and that's that's factored in inflation. You think, wow, that's that's amazing. How did the Army... Pull that off. Well, a, a big reason why they were able to pull that off is because they're flying their helicopters a lot less. So their flight hours went down 30%. So that was that was a big driver. Um, the Marine Corps, on the other hand, had their ONS cost increase by about uh, 75% over that time period. And that's in part because they had they increased the size of their fleet, right? They they went from about 750 to 1200 aircraft. And they flew them about the same. So they have a much bigger fleet. So it stands to reason that their overall ONS costs increased over that time period. Is there any practicality to looking at this from a per aircraft perspective uh, at some point? Absolutely. Because when you look at it from a per aircraft perspective, you can get some, there's some interesting comparisons that can be made. Um, You know, not surprisingly, when you look at uh, for example, cost per flight hour. Um, bombers are very expensive. There aren't very many of them, and they cost a lot. Uh, so the the B one, for example, cost about one hundred and seventy three thousand dollars per flight hour. The B two is about one hundred and fifty one thousand dollars per flight hour, and that's because there are very few of them. Um, when you look across fighter aircraft, what you find is that the older fighter aircraft tend to be less expensive to fly, in some cases significantly less expensive to fly than some of the newer ones. So the the, um, F-22 costs about $85,000 per flight hour to operate versus the F-16, which costs about $27,000 per flight hour. So there are some some differences there. Um, Obviously that's not, that's one factor among many, many, many others about decisions to be made about sustainment, and operations and the composition of the fleet, but it's something to to consider. To that point of using this information to make decisions, what's your sense of the decisions that one should uh, think about regarding the data that you've assembled here, Diana? I think this data really underscores the importance of thinking about sustainment and sustainment costs throughout the entire life cycle of any system. 
you know, we found that DOD spent about $54 billion in 2020 to operate and support these 49 systems. So that's a lot of money. That figure alone would put it in the top 10 in terms of overall militaries worldwide. Um, so we think that there needs to be increased congressional attention and increased leadership attention within DOD on uh, building in reliability when you're acquiring and, and um, uh, deploying new systems, as well as focusing on sustainment cost and sustainment outcomes in the same way that there's focused on cost, schedule, and performance when systems are being built. So in other words, keep track of these things throughout the life cycle, not just when it's being built and deployed. And the way that you uh, outline that, Diana, it sounds to me like the concepts of sustainability and reliability are two totally different concepts. They're tied together maybe, but they're not the same thing, right? Correct. So reliability gets into um, when you're producing or planning to produce cutting-edge, state-of-the-art systems with highly esoteric and very sophisticated parts, make sure that you can actually produce parts to meet the technical specifications and that you can put them together in a way to ensure that the system can be maintained. Sustainment is a function of parts, but among many other things. So sustainment includes making sure you have systems in place to have the people you need to maintain the, the aircraft, the parts you need, the facilities that you need, and you have that all of those things in place at precisely the right time. So it's a pretty sophisticated and delicate dance, um, and there's some definite areas of improvement. Diana Maurer, terrific insight as always. Excellent work. Thanks for joining me to talk about it. Thank you very much, Francis. You can find a link to Diana's work at DefenseScoopPodcast.com. The Defense Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Defense Scoop Podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Defense Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher help me put the show together every week, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Defense Scoop Podcast returns next Wednesday. I'm Francis Rose. I'll talk to you then. Thanks for listening.